his belief is, and the Guardian's belief is, that, that in the course of covering the riots, the way in which journalism was done in events like that, fast-moving events, unpredictable, things that you can't turn up at 2 o'clock and something will happen, but something is happening all the time, all over the place, um, that, that a new understanding was gained as to how you cover such events. So, uh, Paul, we're really grateful to you for coming and sharing your experience with us. Um, we'll have half an hour or so, and then we'll have yeah. discussion. Okay, well, thank you. Firstly, sorry for being five minutes late. Pleased to be here. Now, I've given a version of this presentation once before, so I kind of have a brief sense of what I'd like to say to you. Um, but first of all, uh, let me, if this works, which it should do. Yes, we begin. Um, I'll begin by talking to you about The Guardian, um, because some of you may have heard of this concept of open journalism, and it's partly a, it's partly a, a marketing uh, strategy or a kind of philosophical direction of travel, but it's also, I think, a kind of a, a revisiting of how we conceive of our role in the media landscape at The Guardian. Um, to summarise it, I think we, we've kind of recognised that there's been a very fundamental shift in the nature of news journalism, one that you'll all be very aware of. But the, the basic model that existed for three centuries, um, the Gutenberg era, if you like, in which journalists and media proprietors defined what was news um, and were the kind of arbiters of truth. And um, once a story was published, that was kind of the end of that story. But that, that basic model existed for a very long time. Um, it, it made journalists and owners of newspapers around the world decent amounts of money. Um, and, and then you know, we're in the process of a, a period of radical change, um, one in which uh, anybody with access to a mobile phone or a computer um, can interpret the world around them. They can do the basic things that were previously the, the monopoly of journalists. So they can, they can record and they can share and they can broadcast. And there will be a dispute as to whether or not this constitutes journalism, a dispute as to whether or not it's uh, quality journalism. Um, but I, I, what I, I think is harder to contend with is, is this is um, material which looks and feels like journalism and to some degree fulfills a similar function. Um, so the question is how do you respond? And some news organisations, I would argue, are trying to maintain the journalistic model which, which, is, which will soon be extinct. And I think at The Guardian, the reason I, I quite feel fortunate to work at The Guardian is because I think we're seeking to try to um, find ways in which we can embrace this change and exploit it uh, rather than resist it. So we are, if you like, digital first um, and our news is, is, is free. It's kind of not just existing on the web as, you know, for example, a piece of the Times of London would, which is behind a paywall, exists on the web, um, but it isn't really of the web. It's not interlinked with it, doesn't uh, exist within the ecosystem of discussions that occur on the web in the way that Guardian stories do. Um, and we're currently, for what it's worth, the third most read uh, newspaper website in the world, um, uh, after the New York Times and the, and the Mail Online. So, um, briefly, to speak about kind of social media, we, we say social media, I mean specifically Twitter, and I presume that most of you um, either have used or do use Twitter or know what it's about. If not, shout now and I can give you a quick, quick introduction. I thought you would. Um, well, anyhow, uh, a very, very brief history, um, as I see it. Uh, my personal... Um, 
discovery was in uh, November 2008 during the Mumbai terrorist attacks. And um, like many other journalists in newsrooms around the world, but I think also in India, when this happened and the security services and authorities in Mumbai blocked off large parts of the city, making it very difficult to travel around, it became quickly apparent that there was this technology called Twitter, which now enabled people, both journalists and bystanders, um, to record what was happening and to broadcast it. And I was sat in our office in London and saw a feed of information coming in from around uh, Mumbai during the attacks. And it was just a real revelation because it looked and felt not dissimilar to a wire feed, you know, a ticker of, of, of updates and stories from Reuters and AP, but it was, of course, you know, citizens or unpaid journalists, or if you like citizen journalists, you can, you can debate the most appropriate term. But they were not paid journalists. Um, uh, they were providing a useful perspective. Um, and then a couple of months after, three months afterwards, this plane crashed into the Hudson River. Many of you will remember this. Um, uh, few people uh, knew at the time, I think probably know since, that this picture was tweeted. And it's used by some as one of the first examples of, um, of, of kind of Twitter arriving in the kind of media world, because the picture was, was tweeted and had reached uh, tens of thousands, probably millions of either phones or computer screens before any New York Times or Washington Post journalists had arrived on the scene to take out their notepads. There was a guy called Yanis Crumbs who was on a boat in the Hudson when the plane kind of crashed beside him. Um, so it was just a few months after that that I began, became getting involved in it. But just to give you a, a, a quick example of how significant I think and how much of a disruption I think this is for our industry. If you think of, I use this because it's the biggest news story of last year, death of Bin Laden. Every major news story now, I think, is told to some degree, and often first, through the prism of social media. So Bin Laden's death, the announcement of his death, wasn't, um, didn't come from uh, Osama Bin Laden, uh, sorry, didn't come from Barack Obama, stood at a lectern at the White House, as we may have expected, you know, announcing that the US had killed their enemy number one. Uh, it, was a, it was a tweet that was um, tweeted by a, uh, an aide to Donald Rumsfeld, the then former defense secretary, and he had heard on the grapevine that Bin Laden had been killed and tweeted it. And that's how I and I presume many other people first heard that this may be true. And then if you look at the other end of the story, you know, the raid on Abbottabad in Pakistan, uh, that too was, was live tweeted. And the person who was tweeting at the time had no idea that what he was providing regular updates on was the assassination of Bin Laden. For him it was just an explosion uh, and some kind of military activity near to his house. It was only in retrospect that he and everybody else realised that he just provided um, a digital footprint, uh, a, a time-stamped, detailed uh, trail of evidence about what was happening and when, when uh, that raid happened. And I think this applies to many news stories. Uh, fortunately, this morning, many of you would have heard, there's a brilliant case in point, which is the, the crash of the helicopter in London. Now, I was listening to the radio today, the Today programme, and before they announced it on the radio, I was looking at it on my, on my phone. And I'd, I'd seen the aftermath of the crash from three or four different perspectives. Um, it's fascinating. And we, uh, it'd be good to talk a bit more about that as well, because there's been an, an interesting legal ruling on this just yesterday about the copyright of these images. But I wanted to talk to you um, about some of my personal experiences. Um, very quickly, it, it was only three months after the plane in the Hudson River, two months in fact, in March, 
2009 that I joined Twitter. And I joined shortly before uh, protests, major protests in London, the G20 protests. Um, and, you know, there was, a, with all of these big summits, lots of world leaders congregate in London. And there were big protests, maybe three to 5,000 people were there. And I was using Twitter, as many journalists now do, but at the time just experimenting, using it as a method for, for broadcast, because it's the fastest, most instant uh, method of, of broadcast. So just kind of informing people what I was seeing and hearing. And uh, toward the end of the day, we'd heard that somebody had died. Um, and he was a newspaper seller. His name was Ian Tomlinson. And he died, we were told by the police, in the vicinity of the protests. Um, but they were very careful in their formal briefings, and more importantly, their informal briefings, to give uh, journalists the impression that nothing suspicious had happened around his death, that he'd merely died in the, in the you know, close to or the vicinity of the protest, and it had nothing to do with police. Um, and in fact, uh, these were many of the kind of types of stories that were being run at the time. I use this as an example because this was a newspaper uh, sold by Ian Tomlinson for 20 years of his life. This was the Evening Standard newspaper. So if any publication had a, if you like, a moral duty to properly interrogate the circumstances of his death, it would be, uh, I would argue, the Evening Standard. But, but you, know, they, you see the nature of this story. It says, you know, police pelted with bricks... So protesters are throwing bricks at police as they try to help dying man. So that, that very much paints a picture of police good and protesters bad, you'd probably agree. And this was the type of story that all news organisations were running, in fairness. Um, and uh, pretty much all journalists, um, we may have regretted it afterwards, but were very quick to accept the official version of events as it was put by police. Um, so anyway, new to Twitter in, in, in the days and weeks afterwards, I was just studying how the technology was being used by non-journalists. And it was quite interesting that the crowd that had existed at the G20 um, had in some ways reconvened online. Um, and they were interrogating the official version of events. And they were doing some quite interesting stuff. So they were trawling for any video footage uh, near the Bank of England where the protests had happened and, 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 and sharing it on YouTube. There was a huge um, database of Flickr photographs and there were attempts to um, timestamp Ian Tomlinson's last 30 minutes alive. And some of it was reliable, other bits not. But, but gradually through this process, I started to get come across witnesses um, and images um, and we started publishing. And it um, culminated in a video uh, that showed um, Ian Tomlinson, that I won't show you because we don't have time, but showed Ian Tomlinson being uh, pushed to the ground, struck with a baton and then pushed to the ground by a police officer. Um, and an inquest into that police, into, into Ian, Tomlinson, Ian Tomlinson's death concluded that the police officer had unlawfully killed him. So it was a, it was a very big story. I mean, the video footage... Uh, showed uh, decisively, really, what had happened to Ian. And he was walking away from police. He had his hands in his pockets. Um, he was drunk. He was stumbling away. And he was attacked from behind. And it was a major story here. Um, so uh, it, it gave us pause to, to uh, reason to pause and, and consider. And I, like I like to do, I think, if you get a good story, is to do a bit of a post-mortem and work out how you got from A to B to C. Um, and it was upon doing that that we thought that this was a, a potential technique, not just for broadcasting, but actually for 
um, conversing with people, that potentially there were forms of collaborative uh, investigation that we could do through Twitter. And then that happened um, exactly a year later. Um, and again, I won't spend too much time talking about this case, but this is a, an asylum seeker called Jimmy Mavenga. He was an Angolan man who in 2010 was being deported back to Angola. We'd heard that he had died on a plane whilst he was being deported. A British Airways flight, these are commercial aircraft, so they have passengers on them, regular passengers on them, and then the asylum seeker accompanied by some security guards, private security guards. And it was through Twitter, and only through Twitter, that we were able to track down the witnesses on the plane. Um, I, I cannot still to this day, and I've given a few talks about this particular case, and no one has properly disputed it, thought of a, a different technique in which we could have found the witnesses who were on the aircraft. Now, by the time we started looking into the story, they had travelled to Angola. Most of them were expats, um, engineers working in oil fields, so they'd then taken internal flights to distant parts, remote parts of Angola. There was no way that BA were going to give us a list of their passengers. We tried other routes, visited the hotels where we thought um, the, air, the air crew may have worked, tried, tried to find pilots, but it, none of it um, succeeded. The way in which we found passengers was by uh, using social media to uh, put, if you like, online magnets into the public domain. So telling people that we had questions and suspicions about this death, and we wanted to know if they could help us in, in, in return. And in the end, we got five, five witnesses who said that they had seen the security guards um, handcuff Jimmy Mabenga uh, behind his back and then bend him over double. There has yet to be an inquest, but we suspect he died of positional asphyxia, a form of suffocation. And, and they said that he, they, they heard him saying, you know, I'm, um, you're killing me, you're killing me, I can't breathe, for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then he died. So it was a similar story to the death of Ian Tomlinson in that there was a, an official version of events which we disputed, that we eventually disproved, and we did so through utilising, the, if you like, or harnessing the power of, of social media. So that was where we were at come about a year and a half ago. Um, uh, and then the riots happened. And so I think we, because we'd had quite a lot of practice, and um, I personally had a lot of practice, it put us in a good position when the riots happened to think about how potent this form of communication could be and how we as journalists could use it. So for those of you who need a bit of a recap or don't know too much about the, the England riots, um, they were a big event. They, um, I mean, uh, estimates of around 15,000 people um, coming out onto the streets over four days. Um, it was a, a scale and intensity of disorder that we hadn't seen in this country for at least a generation, um, since the early 1980s when there was another bout of sustained rioting. Um, some people argue that this, this what happened um, in August 2011 was actually worse than, than what happened in the early 1980s. Other people dispute that, but certainly um, it was very bad. Uh, it left uh, five people dead, caused about half a billion pounds worth of damage. Um, it began with the death of this man, a guy called Mark Duggan, who was a resident of Tottenham, which is a, a borough in North London, and he was shot dead by police on August the 4th. And what happened subsequently to his death is not really that uncommon where, when there are kind of controversial deaths of this kind, which is that 
the family and relatives and local community people congregated at the police station to ask for answers. So he was shot dead, there were two bullets fired, uh, both of them came from his gun. So he hadn't actually discharged his gun. So there, was, there were obviously concerns about the, the circumstances of his death. Uh, what happened then was, was again, a, a, a bit less common, but not totally uncommon, which is that the protest became violent. Um, first some police cars were set on fire, then a double-decker bus, one of those classic red buses, and then people began to break into shops and loot shops. But that, again, is not unheard of um, in cases like these. Uh, what really um, made the riots stand apart was their spread. So um, that night, the riots spread two miles uh, west to another area of London, Wood Green, and then the following day, they spread north and south. And by the third day, um, about 80 to 85% of London was seeing disorder. So really uh, it fast spread. And then it, of course, spread across the country. So we had cities like Birmingham and Manchester and Liverpool and Nottingham, um, uh, even, even relative towns like Gloucester. Uh, technically a city, maybe, I don't know. But, but, but rioting across the country. And that was what made it so unique. And that's what made it such a difficult story to report. Because if we'd lined up all of the paid journalists in the country on street corners, we still couldn't comprehensively tell the story of the riots. We just wouldn't have enough collective resources. Um, we could do a good job, and we could do our best, but we wouldn't comprehensively tell the riots. It would take a long time to do that. Um, for me, uh, the riots began with this picture. This was one of the first police cars that were set on fire. And if you like, this is the equivalent picture to the plane um, half-submerged in the Hudson River. This is the kind of announcement. Uh, and of course, it was tweeted by a bystander. And I live two miles south of Tottenham, and when I saw this picture, uh, I was very keen to get to Tottenham to see what was happening for myself and see if I could begin reporting. It was a Saturday night about nine o'clock when that picture reached my phone. Um, so the first thing I did was, was ask for help. Um, and I think this is an important uh, point to make, which is that so often journalists are used to telling people uh, what a story is rather than asking for, for help. And it was the first in many, many, many uh, occasions during the riots when I had to ask people for guidance. <clears throat> they corrected us when we made mistakes. They provided places where we could uh, recharge our mobile phones. They told us where to go and when because they could see it happening outside of their windows. And if I'd been a, a journalist reporting those riots in... Uh, in the UK in the early 1980s, or even the LA riots in the early 1990s, or in fact any disorder in probably most parts of the world up until just a few years ago, and I wanted to know where to go, I probably would have chased ambulances um, or followed plumes of smoke, or just got to the, onto the street and asked people for advice. And all of those are worthwhile you know, forms of trying to get a, a, around. But I was a, able to ask what turned into a, a growing, very quickly and fast-growing network of potential collaborators. So I began the riots with about 8,000 uh, followers and finished with around 45,000. And these were people who actively wanted to help, actively giving me guidance all the way through the night. It was four consecutive nights, so often 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, people were helping me decide where I should go and how I should report the story. Um, and there isn't very much you can say in a tweet um, uh, 
Orwell said, uh, why, why use a long... No, never use a long word when a short one will do. Um, and I do think that journalists, through using this mechanism of communicating, are being reminded of the uh, usefulness of pithy reports. You know, it's only 140 characters. Um, but it's kind of like the outer layer. And it also recalibrates your relationship with your reader. You know, they're no longer just the passive consumers of what you're producing. They can feed back too. Um, and this was just, I'll give you a few very quick examples. This was the first night when, as I said, the riots spread to another section of London. And at this stage, at around five o'clock in the morning, there were no police, uh, no fire engines, no ambulances. And, you know, I was just stood there watching lots of teenagers breaking into shops, filling their suitcases with, with looted goods. Um, and then the following day in Enfield, um, we were able to be there first because people were telling us, you should come to Enfield. There's large groups of teenagers gathering on street corners. We've heard that there are going to be riots in Enfield tonight. Come to Enfield. And we were there for nine o'clock when things kicked off. Um, and when I say it's the outer layer, um, you, know, you can also... I mean, the report, reporting tool is a, is a mobile phone, right? A smartphone. And it can record pictures as well as send tweets. So shortly after sending that tweet, I sent a blog post written on my phone, a picture which I recorded on my phone, and then finally a video uh, also recorded on the phone. And here you can see some people quickly running out of the, uh, of the jewellery store. So we can tell stories in um, many different ways. Um, I, I'll show you this, but it'll seem a bit like I'm bragging, maybe I am, but this is a list of the most retweeted accounts during the riots. And, um, and I'm, I, I'm showing you partly because obviously I'm chuffed to be, to be number two, but um, I think it's interesting to look at this list uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, the three at the top, the three most retweeted accounts are all people as opposed to corporate feeds. Now, the corporate feeds, like at BBC News and at Guardian, have millions of followers, um, yet they were not the most retweeted. Um, and I think that tells you something about how social media operates at its best, um, which is that uh, it's kind of social before it's, it's media. And um, in the same way that you're not particularly popular, if you speak in a corporate way, um, you're kind of monotone and you never betray feelings or uh, you don't write with, you don't speak with any kind of uh, flair or, um, you won't be popular online if you are one of these uh, rather boring corporate feeds which is like an RSS feed and nothing more and people seem to be more popular and successful online but also look at who's number one because sometimes when I give I've given um, a version of this talk to some students and um, they uh, said to me, well, it's fine, you, you, you work for The Guardian, you have this incredible platform. No wonder you, um, you receive this attention. And, and they write in saying that, you know, privileged to have a platform like The Guardian. Uh, but in one way, they're wrong. And that's that, you know, anybody can begin with zero and, and achieve a huge amount. In some ways, it's an equaliser. Uh, number one, at Riot Cleanup, didn't exist when the riots began. And it was just an account created by a citizen who lived in West London who wanted to orchestrate the cleanup after the riots. Um, 
you know, cleaning the debris off the street, essentially. And there was a, there was a big surge of civic enthusiasm in which people came out onto the streets and helped clean up in large numbers. And it was largely orchestrated by this one person at Riot Cleanup. Um, so um, we were interested by the riots as they were happening. Um, uh, and it was very clear when they were happening uh, that it was a kind of major rupture in society. That, you know, it's like, well, um, when you see uh, firsthand, but also in newspapers and on television, uh, civil unrest on that scale, you realise that, that, that something significant has happened. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a massive display of disobedience, collective. And it was very obvious when the riots happened, I think, and certainly in the days after, that this would be a big issue of contention and dispute. And, and so it was. There was no, disagree there no agreement, really, in the political establishment as to why the riots had happened. And the reasons that were being given for their possible cause varied usually dependent upon the political uh, leanings of the person who was speaking. So, you know, you had the right wing saying, this is all to do with um, a, you know, parental uh, breakdown, uh, not enough fathers in the family, uh, maybe it's something to do with kind of rap culture, I mean, all sorts of uh, bizarre theories. And similarly on the left, people saying, well, these are um, protests against the impending austerity cuts. Most of the the austerity cuts haven't been implemented at this stage. But these were some form of kind of political protest, or there was another form of, um, if you like, disrupted culture, maybe something to do in with, with the inherited culture from above, from bankers or MPs who fiddled their expenses. But none of these theories seem to have much kind of um, evidential basis. And the government didn't want to organize a public, uh, to, to run a uh, public inquiry. And that's actually very strange, because after most riots, even far smaller riots, there's a, a public inquiry, you know, often judge-led inquiry in which they take evidence from the community and elsewhere, and they try to think why these riots happen and what should, what should be done as a consequence. Um, so that wasn't going to happen. And um, I guess in part because of that gap, we wondered if there was something that we could do um, which would be a bit more empirical and a bit more serious and analytical. And this was in the days and weeks after the riots. And, and we came up with this project. <coughs> that it was inspired by um, another piece of journalism in Detroit in 1967. And uh, a newspaper, the Detroit Free Press, had teamed up with um, academics, mainly psychologists in the city, after the riots in Detroit. And these were the, mo the deadliest riots in modern US history. I think more than 60 people died. Uh, and they teamed up with them to go out and interview people who, many people who were living in those communities, but some of the people who'd become involved in the riots in Detroit, to find out why they'd happened. And uh, I phoned up the professor who ran that, a guy called Phil Mayer, um, and talked to him about the feasibility of replicating something, or the concept anyway, uh, now. And he said, we should give it a go. The, th the two things that we would need were, were money, which as you all know, news organisations don't have very much of, and a good academic partner. And um, we teamed up with the London School of Economics University, who thought this would be an interesting project. And we got funding from the Open Society Foundations and the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. And these are two, if you like, charities um, uh, that provide money for, for, for research. But they'd never provided money for research co-run by, by a news organization. And that was the idea, that this would be a 50-50 project run both by journalists and academics. So we were trying to bridge the divide between 
journalism and academia. And at, at, at its heart, the objective of the project was to find these people who, you know, at the time we uh, conceived of the idea, were anonymous. Uh, we didn't know who they were, and of course they probably weren't going to talk um, without uh, us really convincing them to, because they'd committed some quite serious crimes, um, for which many of them, more than 4,000, have been seriously punished. So the idea of talking to a journalist or even an academic about what they did and why they did it was, 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 was going to be challenging. Um, so anyway, we did that and we launched this project. It was called Reading the Riots. It lasted about a year. And to summarise, because I know we're kind of running out of time now, but to summarise, we spoke to around 600 people. So confidential interviews with about 600 people, of whom 270 were those who committed... Um, the violence and the looting and the arson, the rioters and, and looters, um, mostly in London but all over the country. We had a team of 30 researchers. I know this sounds like a, you know, for fellow journalists, like a huge uh, resource, and um, and it was. I mean, I was astounded that we could uh, we could muster that degree of resource. A team of 30 researchers, um, a bunch, you know, maybe we had about six journalists working on the project, a similar number of academics. Um, but, but real substantial resources for people to go out into the communities, find people who were involved in the riots, interview them, we transcribed the interviews, and then there was a process of analysis, mainly led by the LSE, in which they coded and themed these interviews and tried to see what they told us. This, well, I guess, seminar like this, we're more interested in the process of the journalism than the findings of the project. So I'm not going to talk to you about the findings of the project, except to say one thing, which was the thing that proved most controversial, but as time goes by, it's the thing I think we got most right, um, which is that part of the reason many people got involved in the riots was in many of these communities, there was a long-standing and festering mutual animosity between uh, certain sections of the community and police. And much of this revolved around the way in which these sections of the community felt they are treated by police on a day daily basis. Um, the sense that they're not respected, that there is distrust, that um, they're not treated uh, as equals. Um, and many of the people who were involved in the riots, not just in London but elsewhere, saw the disorder as a form of revenge, as their chance to get their own back. Part of the reason I think people didn't like that conclusion was because they didn't think that was a justifiable reason to get involved in the riots. I happen to agree with that. I, I don't think it's a justification. But I do think it's an explanation. Um, and as I said, as time goes by, I think it has more validity. Um, but the thing I'm going to finish on is another dimension of the project, because uh, I wanted to talk to you and began talking to you about social media and Twitter. And we really felt that it would be important to have a dimension of this research project that properly interrogated the resource that Twitter would be. Um, so if you like, think of all of those uh, millions of, well, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who were tweeting their way through the riots. They uh, left a kind of kaleidoscopic um, memory base of information about the riots, people's opinions, what was happening where and when, and we wondered if that was something we could, we could interrogate for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, firstly, because government and police uh, were very quick to blame Twitter and Facebook and say that the riots were partly incited or insta instigated through these social networks. So that was one, if you like, theory that we thought we should test. But we were more also actually quite interested in, 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 in how information flows through Twitter at times of crisis. 
So we, we convinced Twitter, the company, to give us a database of uh, 2.6 million tweets. And then we started to analyze them. And actually, there weren't even the resources in the LSE uh, to know how to analyze a database of this kind. So we got some, some more help from some other universities. And we analyzed this data set. Now, on the first point, you know, was Twitter used to incite or organize the riots? Uh, the answer was no. And sometimes a negative can be a, a quite a profound answer. Because um, it was widely assumed to be the case that it had been used in that way. You know, um, from the Prime Minister David Cameron to the head of the Metropolitan Police had said definitively that it had. And actually, when you interrogate the data set, it becomes very clear that nobody was using this as a forum to say, let's get involved in the riots or let's meet at this place at this time. Um, and if you think about it, they would have been stupid to. I mean, it's the, it's the digital equivalent of you know, posting a, a notice on your village hall saying, I want to get involved in the riots and then signing it with your name. Um, and many of the people we interviewed said, no, of course we didn't do that. Um, now, what was perhaps more interesting from the journalistic perspective was looking at rumours. Uh, if you have uh, the time uh, and the inclination, you might want to have a look at this interactive that we built. So we, we took apart six rumours that existed during the riots. And these ranged from, I mean, frankly, they're all quite farcical and bizarre rumours. Uh, one that the London Eye was on fire, you know, the big steel structure that you have next to Big Ben, and it wasn't on fire. In fact, there was another rumour that Big Ben itself was on fire. Um, there was a rumour that, uh, that rioters had broken into a branch of McDonald's and, um, and started cooking themselves food. Um, <laughs> the first part of the rumour was undoubtedly true. They did break into McDonald's. I don't think they, um, they started making themselves food. Um, but it was still reported as true in some newspapers. But these rumours emerged and were then propelled through the Twitter sphere if you like. Um, but there was one that I, I, I find particularly interesting because um, it tells us something. And this was a rumour about London Zoo. And you see this tweeter begins by saying, hearing reports that London Zoo was broken into and a large amount of animals have escaped. Too far, that's not cool. So th this is where um, it begins. Uh, now, of course, London Zoo hadn't been broken into and there were no animals on the streets, but Sometimes disinformation uh, is sexier and spreads faster than truth. We know that. Um, and as you can imagine, that, that quickly uh, gained a momentum of its own. People started retweeting that tweet. It was an invention, uh, a fabrication. Um, and then it gets worse because somebody else says, oh my God, reports of tigers uh, <laughs> roaming around Primrose Hill. And then they see London Zoo breaking. They've created their own hashtag. And they've actually linked to a picture as proof. So now we've got you know, the second layer. People are saying, well, look, here's, an, here's evidence of London Zoo having been broken into. Um, and this supposedly is an image of a, and it is, I tell you, it is actually a big cat uh, on the street. Um, so someone's linked a picture saying, look, here's my evidence of, of London Zoo having been broken into. But actually, as, as somebody else points out, um, London Zoo say that's a 2008 picture of a tiger in Italy. Um, and so it goes on. Uh, and I think what's, um, sorry, what's interesting about this, this tiny little nugget, and there were so many examples like this, is that, um, yes, Twitter was uh, a source of disinformation. But, but actually, if you look at how these rumours existed, they were punctured by um, 
the same types of people who were propagating them in the first place. Um, it was happening organically, and it was happening often independently of journalists. So you had these news cycles in which a rumour emerges, um, it spreads, people discuss it, and then people find that it's not true. Um, but people themselves were establishing that it wasn't true. And uh, the sense of civic duty to tell the truth um, really came through this data set. So people were doing all sorts of things. Uh, you know, when there were rumours of riots in Kilburn, which is another part of London, there were no riots in Kilburn, someone uh, tweeted uh, a link to a traffic, live traffic camera in Kilburn to say, look, here's evidence that there are no riots in Kilburn. Uh, there were people who were, um, off their own back, producing lists of trustworthy sources on Twitter to help people decipher fact from fiction. And it was happening throughout. Um, which uh, brings me to the final point, and maybe a somewhat provocative conclusion for a room full of journalists, but it's nice to have to begin with a debate, which is, can we have news without journalists? Um, now, I, I'm sure all of our instinctive reaction is no. And uh, I, I do think it's a fair point that, that the more journalists working on a story, the better uh, journalism will, uh, that will emerge, undoubtedly. Um, but I do think that the, the digital era has, has brought us to a place which is definitely distinct from anything that existed before, in a really important way. Um, I imagine if we uh, sucked out all of the journalists from the world. You know, they just everybody who is a paid journalist is is in, instantly kind of expunged from planet Earth, um, and something happens. Well, if that had happened maybe 10 or 15 years ago, uh, I think it would have been a long time for that news to spread. Um, if that were to happen today or tomorrow, um, you know, there would be serious repercussions, but there would still be um, attempts to sort information, to broadcast it, to check it, to verify it. There will be a similar process of interrogating facts that journalists have been doing for centuries, but it would be done by people who are not paid journalists. Um, and I don't say that because I think we don't have a role to play. I think our role, if anything, um, has changed but become more important. Uh, but I just say that because I think it, it illustrates how different an environment uh, we're working in now as compared to just a few years ago.